Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage from the Bible, we read it with you together and we discuss it getting three different perspectives uh, from three different people. Uh, just before we get into it, the little bit of housekeeping, uh, as you may sort of notice already, and if you don't already know, Lachlan and I, uh, we both live in Sydney and uh, Morgan lives in Melbourne. And this is the one odd episode where we're doing it, we're doing it remote, uh, where Lockie and I are both in Sydney, Morgan's in Melbourne. So if it sounds and looks a bit different, bear with us. We're sort of working out the whole remote situation. Ideally, we want to be uh, recording in person, but there may be a couple episodes where this happens. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. How are we all, how are we all going? It's nice and sunny and in Sydney, and we can actually say locational based stuff now because <laughs> we're, we're in different places. It's a beautiful sunny day in Sydney. Yeah. How is it in Melbourne, Morgan? <laughs> it's pretty cold and sad looking outside here today. Ah, oh, that's all right. Well, we set ourselves a um a challenge. We did two weeks ago. We um we record these in two chunks, um, and so that's why we didn't talk about it last weekend. I'm, I'm off memory. I did did say that we we weren't going to talk about it because we didn't actually fast or anything. But did we fast this week? I did. So how did you find it, Lockie? What did you do? I mean, I fasted. Um, it was interesting. So the lack of food wasn't that big of a deal for me. Um, uh, but the lack of coffee was probably the more noticeable thing. Mm. Um, I've only become yeah. a coffee-a-day person since my wedding because someone gifted me with a lovely coffee machine that I now use daily. So a little bit concerned me that about halfway through the day, I definitely had a uh, a lack of coffee headache. Um, mm. But otherwise, it was an interesting experience because I think what I failed to do was dedicate enough of the day to spending time with God and seeking Him because what I did is I just did my normal everyday work, mm. but I just didn't eat. And I like, don't get me wrong, I had a really productive day at work. Uh, so I worked for my local church and I wrote like a week's worth of devotions for the youth. And so it was like a really productive day. I was like really in the zone, not just distracted by a lot, but I don't think I spent enough time combining it with the prayer element. So yes, when I got hungry, I did a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but I don't think I focused enough on God despite the fact that I was fasting. So that was just a bit of my experience and mm. something that I can try and adapt for next time. Yeah, so you'll take that into next time. Yeah, that's that the plan. More, that more focused on God aspect. Mm. Um, did you allow any part time of the day for that or was it just more of a go straight into the day just out of curiosity? No, I just sort of did my day. Yeah, um, I think my, my original expectation was that from very early on the day I would suffer hung, hunger pains and therefore use that time to pray and to focus on God but instead I just kind of got into a groove of the work I was meant to be doing that day and suddenly it was the end of the work day. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's you getting, not distracted, but your your brain's getting caught up on what you're doing. Uh, what about you, Josh? How did you go? Did you get a chance to fast? I did, yes. Yes, I did it whilst I was down in um, Melbourne. I did a half-day fast. I took the time in the morning, so I... I essentially just skipped breakfast and like morning tea but i woke up specifically with the um with the intention of i'm not going to look at my phone uh the only time i am going to look at my phone is either for the time or f um for opening up the u version bible app because um, that was the only bible i had on me 
and so there was a, about an hour before I needed to be where I was going. And so I just took that time. I just so happened to read the verse of the day and was like, all right, I'll just read the whole chapter of that verse of the day, um, which it was, it was John, the book of John and looking at the sh- Jesus being the shepherd, uh, being our shepherd. And I, I just spent that hour praying and um, reflecting over that passage. And it was nothing I didn't necessarily already know, but it, it was, it was really nice just to enforce that sort of idea. I think it within me of, um, that Jesus is uh, our shepherd, and so it was quite um, it was quite nice. Just and just just continuing in that prayer, um, that time about a it, it's 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 interesting praying for an extended period of time. I don't know if this happens to anyone else, but my brain sort of is in that prayer mode, then wanders, then goes back into it, and then another thought pops up, and then goes back in. So it's not like a consistent. I'm praying like, well, I quite sort of am, but. It, it's always like going to different, my brain's always going to different places, but it's in the, but it's intentionally still in that sort of prayer moment. I don't know mm. if that's right or wrong, but um, I went into it knowing, oh, well, half day, but I'm spending that intentional hour, not looking at anything, just, just the Bible and then, and then praying. So it was, re- it was quite, it was, it was really good. And it's wild. How could you feel without food? <laughs> Like you feel, I don't know, you can, you can still, it's not like it's agonizing or, or necessarily too painful. It's just, um, you just get in and you're, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing your day and you sort of forget that you haven't had any food. Yeah. That's what I found. Like I even at dinner time when my wife sat down and started eating, it wasn't that big of a deal. I was like, oh, I'm fine. I can keep going. The next morning we organized to have breakfast together to uh, break my fast <laughs> And even then, I was like, "Look, I'm very happy to go eat a bacon and egg roll now, but I don't have to." Yeah, yeah. Did you, Morgan? Did you fast? Uh, to be completely honest, I didn't. I didn't prioritize it, and life has been very busy with work, and I didn't. I probably didn't eat from being busy, but I didn't <laughs> fast intentionally. <laughs> so I definitely want to try it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear how everyone and the listeners also went with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to know how you went. So feel free to share. Send them through, put them in the comments, wherever we'll see it. Definitely. Anyone, uh, anything else happened during the, during the weeks that we haven't recorded that we want to share or. Um, last time we recorded, I was sharing about, we're about to have a big like evangelism, invite a friend night at our youth ministry. Um, and that happened and we had a whole bunch of new faces turn up and they heard the gospel preached and that was a really exciting night. I just thought I would uh, share that Good. here. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I had a, um, I had a patient at work. I work at a hospital. Um, a little three-year-old girl who's been there for about seven months um, and she finally got to go home from a heart transplant. Um, and the night she came into the hospital, mum was waiting in emergency and we kind of, I just had this feeling and I went over and just chatted to her. I was like, are you okay? And I noticed she was wearing a cross and we actually prayed together outside emergency seven months ago. Um, and so we just connected and I saw her every day when she came into the hospital and yeah, she got to go home, the little girl. Um, so that was That's really exciting. special at work this week. Oh, good. How was that praying with someone that you, you you don't really know? It was weird because complete stranger, but I felt like I knew her in that moment because she was in so much desperation. Mm. We were in a car park outside emergency um, and it was it felt like just a divine intervention timing kind of situation. Um, and we just connected over that over the weeks. Um, and every time I saw her, I was like, how's things, go- like, how's things going? Um, and like even on the worst days, she'd even be like, I'm praying for you too. Like she was just a really cool person 
Um, but yeah, it didn't feel like a stranger. It was really strange. But That's yeah, amazing. it's a very yeah. special moment to go home. And Josh, you said you were down in Melbourne? Yes, I've, I've been down in Melbourne, funny enough. Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, just doing a... Um, it's funny, whenever someone asks, like Uber drivers and stuff, like, oh, are you here for work? And I'm like, kind of, I'm kind of here for work. <laughs> I'm, I'm more training up. So I was doing a, I was doing a course and training up to a, for another sort of camera operating role. Um, for those that know it, it's just, specifically it's a steady cam role. So it's a, a gimbal, um, a, a body mounted gimbal based system. Um, so it's highly sort of a specialized um, thing, but hopefully uh, in sort of my film career side of my um, career, I can, I can go into into that role, and it's very um, it's quite fun to mm. um, to do. It's very physical. There, is, it is about twenty to thirty kilos of weight of the actual camera that gets put onto your body. But yeah, three days down in Melbourne doing that, getting to meet some great people, um, lots of good connections. It's a it's in those operators. It's a tight knit community because there's not many of them in Australia. Uh, yeah, so it's really um, it's really cool. So YouTube viewers, get keen for some um, steady cam <laughs> footage coming your way very soon. <laughs> a nice steady, yeah. Would, which it, might, it would be a bit difficult to do it host whilst, <laughs> while recording, whilst yeah, recording and do it, but oh, I'm sure we could, we could try. <laughs> Morgan, what chapters are we doing today? Today we are doing Matthew 11 and 12. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 11 and 12. Please pause now and read those chapters if you haven't already. In these chapters, we see a wide range of responses to Jesus' ministry, including a growing resistance. The chapters begin with the innocent questions of John the Baptist and end with several hostile interactions between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. I like in the first um, part, I really like the bit where it says the poor are told the good news because... I feel like it's like everyone is included and there's all these big things about all the miracles that they're that are happening that the poor aren't forgotten about in it. Sure. Not really sure why that stood out, but I just really like that line, the poor are told the good news. It's a bit of a hope thing. It's that inclusivity. Um, yeah. And that re- that what we were talking about in previous episodes of broader reaches of society and the fring- the fringes and the and that it's not just for noble people, especially of that time, or for the rich, or for those that he Jesus came for everyone. Mm. I yeah, I like how it's because um, when I first read this on on the plane yesterday, having not reading the previous uh, chapters for quite a for two weeks, it immediately was like after Jesus had finished instructing the twelve, you're like, oh yeah, that's right, we're we're straight into it, straight back into it, and. That's right. We've he's just given given out the um, instructions to the twelve disciples. Okay, now we're up to this part of the story. It's a it's a nice little bit of um, just re. Uh, if you haven't like in my situation, haven't read it for a bit, it's like okay, we're we're straight back into it. That's all the context I need to have know. I know exactly where we are in the story mm. uh, here. And this is this is the same John, uh, John the Baptist. Yep, the same John the Baptist we saw. I think last time we heard from him was chapter four. Mm. So here we are in chapter 11. And he's um, now in prison. Yep. Our understanding is that he's in prison because of uh, speaking out against the king. Yes. He doesn't get out of prison from, from here on now. No, no. No. That's the whole beheading part. Which I think is potentially why we see potentially some doubt here in John the Baptist. Oh, okay. Like he, he's in prison. He sort of knows that he was the person to come before the Messiah. And... Uh, then the Messiah arrived in Jesus, and yet here is John sitting in prison. 
And so I think the whole reason he sends messengers or he sends his own disciples to go chat to Jesus is that there's like a, there's like a twang of doubt here mm. because the Messiah has arrived and yet here he is sitting in prison. So it, it, it's sort of he potentially we could get from this is that John may have had the line of thinking of why isn't Jesus coming to physically save me out of this prison? Yeah, because like if you look at John's message, the things John was preaching about was like this big message of judgment and yet Jesus has arrived and hasn't brought forth that judgment yet. Mm. And so John just has a few questions for Jesus, but I think Jesus answers really nicely actually. Um, He doesn't give a direct answer, but he says, hey, look at my works. Look what I've been doing. These are clearly the actions of the Messiah. You have your answer in the deeds that I've been doing, which we saw back in uh, episode four, chapters eight and nine, is the deeds of Jesus prove who he is. Mm. And so John may have had the same uh, level of thinking of what other people, uh, other uh, Jewish people at the time thinking was that Jesus was meant to be a knight in shining armor coming down and breaking them free from the oppression of the Romans. Mm. Um, but this is not the case. No, not at all. And just like you said, the the showing of his deeds is proving who he is, uh, trying to change everyone's mindset of he's not a warrior trying to break the shackles of of the Roman oppression, but the but the shackles of sin. Something here that always interested me, um, which I'll bring up. Um, so in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one, verse twenty one, it says they asked him. They asked John the Baptist, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And yet here in Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, it says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Any thoughts from the table about those two verses, both being in scripture and both being true? Is it contradicting? It's not necessarily contradicting, but John the Baptist in the Gospel of John doesn't identify himself as the Elijah who was to come, and yet Jesus says he is. So it's entirely possible that John the Baptist didn't know. Mm. I'd like to think that John may have just not known, um, or for whatever reason, probably just didn't know. I think maybe, but then it's hard to hard to say. I mean, especially well we. <laughs> Unless we actually ask him. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Josh. One day, one day. If Jesus says that he is, then you sort of <laughs> then trust. Then he is. <laughs> yeah, that he is. Then you trust what Jesus says, right? Definitely. I was reading one commentator during the week who was saying that when John the Baptist in the Gospel of John says, no, I'm not Elijah, he was responding to the expectation that the actual historical Elijah was going to turn up. Mm-hmm. Whereas when Jesus says he is the Elijah to come, he means there was someone coming with the spirit and the power um, of Elijah. And so John is responding to like a very specific historical question, whereas Jesus is saying, no, the plan was always for someone in the spirit of Elijah to come, which is actually what we see in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The Gospel Uh, of Luke, chapter 1, it says um, someone, John is the spirit and power of Elijah. And so that's a potential solution there. Mm. But I think the easier solution is, again, just John was unaware. So John the author or John the Baptist? Sorry, John the Baptist was potentially unaware of exactly what role he was fulfilling. Yeah. Or it could just be a humility thing as well. It's not 
wanting to boast about it. Maybe it was a mixture of of being so humble that he never even thought of it, mm. leading to his unawareness, maybe. But regardless, Jesus says, hey, this is the Elijah you are all waiting for. This mm. is the Elijah who is going to come before the Messiah. That is John's role. And even if he had a moment of doubt while in prison, Jesus still lifts him up as a great person. Like he says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't punish or question him for this what seems like a momentary lapse of faith in Jesus, but Jesus continues to praise him for the role that he is fulfilling. Prison system, like because he was in prison, was it prison systems different? Was it that easy to send out a Because if we think of our modern day prisons, it's like you might have like visitors or they smuggle something in and that's how you get like a messenger out. I am not an expert in prisons in the first century, but clearly <laughs> they operated in such a way that John the Baptist could communicate with people at least some, somewhat freely mm. and send out disciples. Later on in the New Testament, when Paul is in prison multiple times, he writes a whole bunch of letters and so whatever the system was, communication was clearly not a thing that was cut off. I heard that Paul was more under house arrest. Yes, that is sometimes. true. Maybe this was similar. Maybe not. Maybe it was just there was a servant nearby and John was able to get a message out. Who knows? At the end of verse 11, my version says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And he referring to, he referring to John the Baptist. Yes. So everyone yeah. is greater than John the Baptist. If I heard that, then I would have been like, oh, okay. <laughs> but what about all my great deeds? <laughs> you just said that <laughs> I was better than everyone else. <laughs> I think this is a, a situation where the timing of John the Baptist is really significant. So Jesus has just said that there is no one greater than John the Baptist who came before him, mm. but everyone who's going to be in Jesus's kingdom is greater than him. So John sits mm -hmm. in this really almost awkward point of history where he's at the very beginning of the coming kingdom of Jesus. Mm. But he dies before he sees it realized in Jesus' death and resurrection. Mm. And so this is a real affirmation of everyone who comes after, is that even the least member of Jesus' kingdom is amazingly great. This is not meant to be taken as a, a negative thing against John the Baptist. It's purely saying that in this new kingdom, in this new mode that Jesus is bringing, there is a great value and respect to being in that kingdom. Mm. And John is, in a sense, outside of that kingdom, not that he's not saved, but that he he never got to see the fully realized version of what he himself mm. proclaimed. He's such a great and faithful servant prior to Jesus mm. that, in a way, never needed Jesus, but we now all needing Jesus will be greater for having Jesus. I mean, I if want to push he, back and say everyone needs Jesus. No, everyone needs Jesus, and, and so does John. But John obviously was paving the way for Jesus. Yes, he was. Because the way our New and Old Testament theology usually works as Christians is to say that the Old Testament saints, so choose any Old Testament character who was part of God's kingdom, David, Moses, John the Baptist, they all still saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh -huh. They just didn't yet know the method of their salvation because mm. there's only one name and one method that saves. Like the, the minor prophets later on towards the end of the Old Testament says that sacrifices of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. Like that system is set up to show your faith in God and your faith is ultimately what makes you righteous. Mm. That is how Abraham was justified. He was justified by his faith. And the Old Testament saints showed their faith by participating in the sacrificial system of the temple, 
Mm. But ultimately, it is everyone is saved by the blood of Jesus. Uh, okay, so all right. So then, the the misconception in at least for my brain is that Old Testament Old Testament saints and everyone was still saved by Jesus, not just solely God. If that makes sense, because the way my brain's thinking, well, Jesus wasn't around then, so they didn't know of of Jesus and his salvation. They only knew of God's salvation. If we then look at the Trinity, God, Jesus, being in the Holy Spirit, all being the same thing, um, gets a bit confusing. The um, but it is still through, so still through Jesus. Yeah, just like it's, it's the, his sacrifice retroactively applied. Sure, <laughs> but that is. The method of salvation that God has always planned on using. Okay, so they're sort of like grandfathered into the the system, if that makes sense. But then at the same time, going back to the whole Trinity thing, God is Jesus. So, <laughs> so it, it they were originally already still saved through Jesus, who is God. They were always saved through faith. Yes, God has always been a God who gave justification and mm. righteousness through people's faith. It's just. The Old Testament saints had a different way of expressing that faith. Mm. We, in many senses, have it quite easy. We just have to express a faith in Jesus because we know the full story. We have the full message, the full mystery revealed to us. Mm. Whereas for them, they didn't have the full revelation yet, but they had faith in God. They had faith in Yahweh. Mm. They expressed that through their actions, as we should also do. They expressed that faith through the sacrificial system, Mm. but ultimately... There was only one sacrifice that covered sin. It was Jesus. And all the other sacrifices pointed to that. They showed that it would be effective. That makes sense. That clears it. That clears it up. Because like the gears are turning. I'm like, and I can just see like myself and if anyone else just getting confused. Like, but what? Jesus wasn't around then. But how how does that work? And it's like, no, no, that makes sense. Um, I guess when reading this whole section, I have a question. Why, if Jesus is asking so many questions about John, why did Jesus not just go himself to talk to John? Why did he send people? I don't know if the prisons had uh, visitation hours. Yeah, it could have just been that yeah, it was unsafe for Jesus to, to, to visit. He just seems very curious and it just, I don't know. Why did he not just go? It's a good question. I don't think the Bible gives us any answer to that. If I could have a stab, because Jesus is saying at this point that he is, because um, that whole sort of of John the Baptist sort of maybe doubt that that little bit of doubt that he, you know he's in prison and sort of asking of of the the proof of of Jesus and Jesus proving who he is through his deeds. Potentially, it could have been seen that if Jesus went in person, then John may have been pleading for him to get out of prison. That, that it would it could have gone into that whole warrior aspect of if Jesus is coming to the prison, then then he might be coming to then free me out of this prison and go down that road. Um, but yeah. by this, it's maybe through a messenger. It's in, it's reinforcing that John has to have faith through both hearing of Jesus and Jesus and only of Jesus's actions that he has done. Maybe mm. maybe it was that. Before we end this bit on John the Baptist, I think it's really worth pointing to the little parable that Jesus says towards the very end here, which he says, "We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance." We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus is effectively saying, you people are never happy. Like John the Baptist came preaching judgment, declaring that we should be in mourning for our sins and you rejected him. I came in celebration. I came later on, it says, eating and drinking. And you say, nah, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Jesus is basically saying whatever method we use to try and reach you, whether it's John aesthetic lifestyle of not eating, not drinking, calling for repentance, you don't like that. But then with my lifestyle of going to where the needy are and meeting them where they're at and celebrating, you don't like that either. I just think it's a really interesting reflection by Jesus where he's like, this generation, whatever method we use, you just aren't prepared to listen. It's a bit brutal. Oh, yeah, but that's that's classic Jesus. That's sometimes. classic Jesus. Yes, and especially it's it's saying that the towns that he's already been in mm. and performed miracles. This bit's really helpful, the one on repentant towns, because that's the theme of these two chapters is the rejection of Jesus is actually the theme of these chapters, which is really helpful because next episode we're going to look at um, the next sermon of Jesus. And the topic of that sermon is the different responses people are having mm. to his ministry. And so before we get him giving a sermon about that, we're actually about to see a whole bunch of examples of people rejecting him, of people not responding the way that we might expect, given that he is the Messiah, given that the Elijah has already come and proclaimed him to be the Messiah, and yet it's just not happening. Hmm. The towns that are mentioned in this section, the three that Jesus mentions are all at the northern end of the Lake of Galilee, but then the towns he compares them to are quite famous Old Testament cities that God proclaimed judgment upon. And so it's just helpful to point out that these three pagan cities have a well-established history of being judged by God. And yet Jesus is saying these three towns in Galilee that I have performed all these miracles in are going to be judged just as harshly. And the Jewish people would have, if he's saying this to the Jewish people, they would have known this. So then they would have been able to get that weight of it all. Yeah, um, yeah, very much. It'd be like us using real world places of this happened. Like it's, you know, it's that whole metaphor metaphor thing and it's he's using these as a metaphor so that the people of the time can feel the full weight of, of said judgment. Coming off what you just said, Josh, about feeling the weight of the judgment, verse 28 is one of my favourite verses. It's one I learnt quite um, early in my faith journey. I think it's quite a popular one um, and I see it, so it says, my version says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I see this as a bit of an invitation um, from Jesus for rest and that Jesus frees us from carrying the burden of our own sins because he's done that work mm. for us. And I think that, yeah, after what you just said, I really like that. Absolutely. Though. And it's it's even more than that. Like he, he yoke is light compared to the legalism of the Pharisees that people were in. His mm. yoke is light compared to every earthly religion we see today. When I mean when it when they say when when he's saying like yoke, mm. does that mean like egg yolk? <laughs> no. We're <laughs> talking <laughs> like farming yolk that you put over the back of your cattle so they can pull your ah. car. And it, it lessens the load because it's now across multiple animals as it pulls. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Because I always read this oh, no. as egg yolk. I didn't necessarily think it exactly was like egg yolk, but I didn't necessarily knew what yolk meant like actually or what it was actually referring to. So I'm always like, okay, it's, it's not yolk. It's not egg. It's not, and we're not talking about egg, but... That, I'm just curious how that even works. <laughs> His yoke <laughs> is not burdensome. I'm I'm the same. Like I've heard Christian couples say you need to be equally yoked, and I'm always like, "What do you mean?" Yeah. Like, 
<laughs> you're like equally egged uh, like do, do you still yeah, separate like, just, the egg what about the egg white yeah <laughs> i think this shows how removed we all are from a farming context yes <laughs> myself very much included absolutely well, that's good to know because that, that that makes perfect sense it's taking up the burden taking up the extra strain it's distributing it out wow when you actually know what it means, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Bible makes a lot of sense once you realize what it's saying. Yeah. And that section on um, the fact that Jesus will not overburden people, I think, comes through so clearly in the next story at the beginning of chapter 12, where we have Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Mm. And so basically, the Sabbath was a one of the Ten Commandments given by God for the rest of the people. Like, this was meant to be a gift to his people that they could take the Sabbath day off. So it's meant to be a blessing, not a burden. And yet the Pharisees had added so many laws about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath that it had now become quite a burden on the people, even though the original intention of the Sabbath was not actually to be a burden, but to be a blessing. Is it stated in the in the Old Testament or anywhere sort of within our Bible of what the what the Pharisees did, what they were the rules that they then came up with? It's not stated in the Bible, but we do have a few documents, a few missioners that have survived from that time period. Mm -hmm. And so basically some of the forbidden acts on the Sabbath included reaping and healing, um, especially when there was no immediate threat to life. Mm. So you could save someone from death on the Sabbath, but you couldn't like treat a minor injury. Uh. Um, You couldn't reap, you couldn't harvest your grain. You just weren't meant to work in any sense. And then they had very strict definitions about what work was. Do we do we know why they did that? Was it to keep it to keep the Sabbath so sacred? Was and they thought, well, if we put these rules in place, and people are, should be able to keep it sacred. Yeah, the Pharisees, for all the bad rap they get in the Bible, had really good motives. Mm. Their motive was, we never want to break the rules of God. We want to live such a pure and holy life that we never break the laws of God. And to make sure we never break the laws of God, we're going to create a buffer around them of extra laws. Uh, And that's effectively what they're doing here. Is they're saying, hey, God says to rest on the Sabbath. Let's make sure we never do anything that even approaches work Mm. so that we can never break God's command. So good motive, but their strict legalism, Jesus is so against. He gives three arguments, actually, about why his disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. Um, which are ultimately all the same argument, but let me point them out because I think it's interesting. Uh, So the first argument he gives for why his disciples are not breaking the Sabbath is because David in the Old Testament, when he fled from Saul, he ate the special bread in the temple that only the priests were allowed to eat. Now, as an argument, you're like, that's not a great argument. (laughs) We're allowed to just say David did the wrong thing, are we not? Um, But Jesus's point is that David did this and I am greater than David, like a greater David is here. Then his next argument is the priests work on the Sabbath. That's actually their whole job, and yet they remain blameless. And I am someone who is greater than the priesthood. And then his third argument is I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Like I am, I am God. I am Lord over this. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than priests. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so I can actually determine what is breaking the Sabbath or not, and my disciples are not. And so rather than grounding it in any of the laws of the Old Testament, he actually grounds it in, I'm the one person who can truly interpret what is meant to be going on here. Mm. And all your legalism isn't hitting the mark. So I say it's my way or the highway. Yeah, effectively. But he's the one person who's actually allowed to dictate that. Yes. 
I think before we move on from the Sabbath section, it is worth bringing up the man that Jesus then heals, which is just an amazing moment of mercy. Because again, like I said before, this was not a person in immediate threat of dying. And so by the pharisaical legalism, he wasn't allowed to be healed on a Sabbath day. But Jesus is saying, you're allowed to do good things on the Sabbath. Mm. That is very allowed. And so I'm going to heal him, even though that now means the Pharisees are out to kill Jesus. And he gives that sort of example of, well, if your sheep falls into a pit, wouldn't you go out and, and take it? Wouldn't you heal someone that is that is in need? Would you be so almost cruel to let that person suffer? To let that your sheep, if you were had if you um the, if you were a shepherd, suffer? I think that that um that last bit he says sort of puts the nail in the coffin of it's like well think about it this way you know if you were a shepherd you had a sheep wouldn't you go after your sheep? Yeah, his logic here is flawless. Yeah, like it's an absolute slam dunk, and then the Pharisees like ah uh, we can't rebut him but we are going to try and kill him there's almost like this like whoa how did you get there like all right we're just straight to killing like there's no like lead up there's no like um <laughs> like maybe we should do something different like all right guys we're going straight to killing all right <laughs> their only option is murder there's only but all right were there no other options wouldn't this go against the um pharisees values i would i would hope i think the pharisees would see a breaking of god's law as punishable by death. Uh-huh. And they have effectively conflated their own laws with God's law at this time period. True, because you could stone someone for mentioning the word Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, because it was saying the name of God, which mm. they were very against. They weren't opposed to doing drastic things. The only problem they had is because they were being ruled by the Romans at this point, they couldn't dish out the death penalty for anything. They needed Roman permission for that, which we'll get to in future weeks when we come to the death of Jesus because... It's not as simple as just declaring him guilty and killing him. They need to work the system so they can achieve their ends. Given that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, Jesus then retreats. Fair enough. (laughs) He heads on out. And then we get the longest quote from the Old Testament that Matthew gives in his entire gospel. And effectively what this quote is saying is that the Messiah is going to be gentle and nonviolent and yet ultimately victorious, which is a good justification for why Jesus then retreats from this conflict. And also gives us just a new insight into Jesus himself, is that his kingdom, the way that he achieves victory, is not going to be a head-on clash, but he's going to be far more gentle. Yeah, it goes back to that whole, it's, he's not a warrior coming down to strike at his enemies. He's having this gentle pacifist approach. But when he returns for his second coming, mm. it is far more like the warrior return that um, these people might have expected the first time around. Bill Zabol is back. I think we've chatted about him the last two episodes because there keeps being like random little like mentions and allusions to these charges against Jesus. But this is the first time we actually get in full the conversation and charge against Jesus regarding Beelzebul. I mean, Jesus just can't seem to get rid of this claim because we've seen this is the third time we've seen this referenced in Matthew. Mm. But it's the first time it's properly explained, which yes. is that Jesus's power is undeniable. Like you cannot question that he's doing amazing things. So what you are therefore left to do is question where this power is coming from. And there's only two sources of supernatural power, which we as Christians and them as Jews believed in, which is God or the enemy. And so if they don't believe he's from God, there's only one option left. So it is quite consistent. Yes. 
prefer them taking this route of of accusing accusing him this way than you know maybe wanting to con- condemn him to death. Of uh... yet, I think this is their way of trying to condemn him to death. Ah, uh, true. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Yeah, okay. No, that makes <laughs> because sense. sorcery, especially by the power of Satan, was punishable by death. Yes. So if they could prove that this power was coming from a non godly source, they could again, have another reason to want to put him to death. Yes, and that's the, I guess this is why this comes after that that sentence where it says they then plotted to how they might kill him and this is part of that plot. Yes, absolutely, uh, is to charge him with another capital offence. I still don't think this one puts him under threat of death by, via the Romans, but it's just another reason that they would have to want him dead. And again, like last time Jesus was confronted, he gives three arguments about why they are absolutely wrong. The first one is, like, what's the point of dividing this kingdom? Like, why would Satan cast out Satan if he already has control over this person? Why would he lose it? Mm. Like, that is silly to divide a kingdom. His second argument is, hey, there are lots of other people doing this type of thing in this time period. Like, we see in other places in the Bible there were Jewish people doing these same type of miracles of casting out demons. And so it was a well-accepted thing. And he's like, hey, if you believe they could do it, why don't you believe I can do it? And then his third argument is, um, I am doing this because I'm stronger than Satan. Satan is a strong man. That's what it says. But I am stronger and have bound him, and that's why I'm able to do this. That, that dividing of kingdoms is, is the one that really sticks out for me. Like I read that yesterday, and you're like, yep, no, that, that solidifies that. Because why would, why, would, why would Satan cast out his own demon? Other than wanting maybe a long play. <laughs> yep. But and and the real sort of mischievousness. But then, if you think about it that simply, I'm like, yeah, why would he? Why, why would he? Why would he do that? And instantly, I think that's a good setup for then the 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 rest of. Oh, okay, like you're already putting, you're already sort of starting to snuff out that idea um, with that one because you start to, for at least for me, think, oh yeah, why would he? Why would he um, cast out his own? Why would Satan cast out his own demons and then getting into the next and just. As you put it, Lucky, the slam dunk at the end of, well, I'm stronger than Satan, so I can cast them out. So from verses 30 and 31, we get this idea of an unforgivable sin. What, Lucky, do you think that is or what, what is that? This is probably the most common question when looking at this passage. A lot of people are very confused when it comes to this idea that there are sins that cannot be forgiven. Um, I am also one of these people who is confused by the idea of sins that can't be forgiven. The The answer I find most persuasive, because I've looked up this question many times, um, and I might just actually read out what my study Bible says about it, because I think that is the most concise answer I've found on this question, is actually just reading word for word from my study Bible. Mm-hmm. And it says this, um, the unforgivable sin is attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. And doing this through the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and his commands. So this sin is committed today only by unbelievers who deliberately and unchangeably reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in calling them to salvation. Jesus brings this up here because that's where the Pharisees are approaching. I don't think they necessarily committed this unforgivable sin yet, but they've become awfully close Mm. to not backing down from the idea that something is being achieved by the power of God and they are saying it's done by Satan. And that is something that God doesn't seem to want to overlook or can't overlook is when he does a marvelous thing and it is then given credit to the enemy. So as I as the explanation I read out says, 
I think this is only committed today by unbelievers who through life unrepentantly refuse to recognize the Holy Spirit. So I don't think we as Christians need to worry about committing this sin. We don't walk on eggshells going, oh no, have I accidentally committed the unforgivable sin? Mm. Freak out. It is something that as Christians you are incapable of committing. Is it more to do with people that worship the enemy or is it more to do with uh, people that just rebuke God, Jesus, uh, um, atheists? All the explanations I see about this sin say that it is like a lifestyle or an unrepentant moment. Mm. And so in that sense, lots of people are capable of committing it in the sense that they just refuse to acknowledge God at work. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's necessarily just Satanists who go, ah, this is Satan's power when it's actually God's. Mm -hmm. I think it is just reaching the end of your life and refusing to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit slash God has been active in it and associating any of those activities to a different source. Yeah. So the question that got raised in my head was, well, what happens if an atheist goes, does a 180 and and then goes, oh, I'm now a believer? Mm. Um, because they were previously an atheist, does that mean that they can't? Or like what you said, um, end of life, if they were still atheists, then it's unforgivable. But if they then eventually came around, that is forgivable? I think the key overriding thing to keep in mind when looking at this verse in particular, which I'll clarify for the listeners, is one of the most confusing verses that we will encounter in our journey in Matthew. Um, the key thing to keep in mind is that anyone who is willing to turn to the Lord Jesus for repentance will be forgiven. Hmm. I think what this sin is referring to is someone who has hardened their own heart mm -hmm. so much that they would never be capable of doing that. Mm. And so anyone you ever chat to, anyone you're ever talking to, almost no matter what they've said or done, mm -hmm. tell them the gospel, present Jesus as an, as an option. If they turn to him, they will be saved. Mm. But those who reach the end of their life and they have constantly throughout their life refused and harden their heart over and over and over to God. I'm sorry, guys, but they're not going to make it. Mm. Just listening to it, I was one of those people that was so against ever turning to faith, ever, and here we are. Um, and I think I had a hardened heart and it took a long time. But now that I've experienced it, God's using that in me to show it to other people. And it's just, it's such a cool thing listening to you say that because, like, I was that person and I was like, if anyone ever mentions it to me, like, See you later. Um, so yeah, it's really cool hearing it and being in that position. Like I wasn't brought up in faith. I was yeah, so against it. And it's so exciting to have you in the kingdom. Yeah. Lord. And it's yeah. and and it's excellent that you're able to to share that as well. You know, mm. and hope hopefully that gives a bit of hope for anyone listening. You know, if there's someone especially it can become very difficult if it's if you're a parent and you know, your kids may have uh, especially if they may be brought up and they sort of fall away or, or or just a friend's family and stuff that all hope is not lost mm, definitely yeah and i guess in that too if anyone listening ever wants to talk about it or is curious or like wants to chat to a newbie maybe with like a little bit less pressure or just worried about it like feel free to reach out um i'd love to have that chat can i ask what the sign of jonah is in our next bit we're about to read Josh, do you have thoughts? What's the side of Jonah? 
to have a crack at it. Is it to do with the actions that Jonah Jonah did and um, the the events? Because it's detailing here the events of of Jonah and the big fish. Not to be mistaken by a whale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a big fish, everyone. Not a whale. If you were brought up in Sunday school, yes, it may have been imagery of a of a whale, but. It, it is a big fish, it says here. I thought it was a whale. I've never been to Sunday school and I thought it was a whale. Look, to be honest, big fish could be the way that the aged people described a whale. <laughs> but again, we have no idea. Because <laughs> Jonah was sent be- um, to warn the Ninevites of, because of their like um, their wickedness and, and everything that they were they were doing. So the sign of Jonah is sort of that, um, is it that that's what Jesus is coming to do? Um, except Jesus is not reluctant in doing it. Like an excellent guess. If you were just given the phrase, what is the sign of Jonah, then that would be an excellent guess. Mm. Thankfully, Jesus, I think, just outlines exactly what we're meant to be looking for in verse 40, where he says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mm. That is the sign of Jonah. Can we think of a moment that Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Because even in the Easter story where he was in a tomb, he wasn't in there for exactly three days and three nights. So it's not referring to the um, his death and resurrection. Oh, it's absolutely referring oh, to absolutely. his death and resurrection. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, is he... Is this a trick? Is this another trick question, Morgan? This is another trick question. <laughs> this one, I know I'm stressed. This one was a trick question. Up. I'll admit it. But I think we, what we need to very quickly <laughs> clarify for our listeners, is that Jesus was dead slash in the ground in the earth, as he says here, from Friday to Sunday, which, while not being exactly three days and three nights, mm. the Jewish idiom was that you could say three days and three nights for any period covering parts of three 24-hour periods. Mm. So while from Friday night to Sunday morning isn't three days and three nights, it is in the colloquial Jewish idiom sense, three days and three nights. And so Jesus says the sign he will give them, the only sign he's prepared to give them from now on, is that he will be dead for three days, three nights. Mm. And that is the sign he's going to give them. Yeah, We just have to get in our brains that, Three days, three nights is just a Jewish idiom for yeah. any length of time that covers three days. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm. while it's only a little part of Friday and a little part of Sunday, a Jewish person would still say three days and three nights. That's just the saying. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds so drastic like the fish. Like I want to know how that happened, how he got into the fish, like how this came apart. Like the fish is in the water. <laughs> it's just so drastic <laughs> reading it. Why couldn't he just lock him away in a cage for three days? Like, why a fish's belly? Have you read the book of Jonah yet, Morgan? No. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, but can we set that as Morgan's homework for the week is to go read the book of Jonah? It's only a few chapters, right. but it's well worth reading and you will understand how Jonah got into a fish and what is going on there. Okay. And seems like really helpful background for what Jesus is talking about here. Yeah, it's very random when I read it like that with no context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this would make no sense without having read the book of Jonah. Mm. So, Lockie, from 43 onwards, um, I'm wanting to know about the demons. Yeah, fair. It's interesting because Jesus then gives a little story after this section on Jonah. And uh, what we find here is another one of these like little tiny mini parables of Jesus. 
And so I'm not sure how much of this we're meant to take as kind of like objective reality. I don't know if when a demon is cast out, they actually find seven friends and head on back and have a second run. But what we do learn from this parable is that you can't just have like a half-hearted repentance. So his whole point here is that this evil generation is refusing to listen to him and accept his signs. And what they really need is a full-on repentance, a full kind of renovation of their hearts, a full guarding of their hearts, because if they just half-heartedly believe him, then it'll actually be worse for them in the end. And that is what that little parable there Mm -hmm. is trying to convey. So pretty much the sooner, the better. Yeah, and the more intentional, the better. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. Jesus is just saying, if you believe this, commit to it wholeheartedly, because otherwise, if mm. you just half-heartedly commit to this, then your state afterwards will be worse than when you began. When it when it refers to Jesus' mother and brother, it, we I we get to that whole like brutal Jesus, who is my mother and who who are my brothers. I understand the point he's trying to make, mm. but um, how to hear to to hear that would be to so um, conflicting because um, correct me if I'm wrong, the point is everyone is brothers and sisters in Christ, not just his blood blood brothers and, 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 um, and, and mother. But if you were standing there and he said that to you, a part of me would be like, oh, uh, but I am your mother though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but then, then the like, and it, this goes back to when we were talking about the um, at the very beginning that conflict uh, of um, you know Joseph and Mary and some of the um, and and specifically with Joseph the conflict of he is not really Jesus's father, mm. um, and the conflicts here of not really Jesus's mother or brother here. Um, it is for everyone, you know, the entire uh, heaven is for the entire kingdom. Yeah, his point is just. My followers are my family. Mm. Um, what is also potentially interesting to bring up here is the fact that um, we know from other gospel accounts that his brothers here, well, half-brothers, didn't believe in him as the Messiah until after the resurrection. We see that probably more clearly in John's gospel, mm. but they were not yet believers. They were not yet in the kingdom. And so it becomes even more apparent why Jesus might have pointed around to his followers, his disciples, those believing in him, those in his kingdom, and going, this is actually my true family at the moment. That's right. The other question I had about this one, it just says brother and mother. What about the father? We don't see Joseph outside of chapter two. Mm. So all kind of the signs point to Joseph having died at some point. Yeah. And we know nothing more, to be honest. Everything else is speculation from here. Mm. But he never appears again in the story after Jesus' birth narrative, which also gives an interesting element to Jesus if his father had died, which is that as the eldest son, it has become his responsibility to lead that family. Mm. And yet here he is wandering off, doing miracles, doing ministry, and not being with his family when he's now the head of that household. Yeah. Which is just an interesting element to consider of what's going on there. This could have added the whole insult to injury here of maybe why it may may have... Or like why maybe that how you're saying like the brothers not believing until after the resurrection because there's 
you know, the the traditions of you are now the head of the house, you're meant to be looking after, and but you're not. And where's well, what about your place here? And and this whole conflict that's that's happening uh, could have been it could have been really difficult um, f- for them to. And I'm sure it's it just you know I'm not a I'm not a parent, but it's just difficult enough when your when your kids go off and do their own thing that. And here, here we are, Jesus doing doing it. I can't imagine what um, Mary, um, Joseph would have been thinking at the time. So we get to the bit of the show where we give our final thoughts. I'm just intrigued about Jonah. I'm still, I can't wait to go off and read that. And I think it just highlights that there's so much depth in every story. and It's all linked mm. and yeah, I'm just going to, go off and look a bit further into it. Yeah, that's a, a similar takeaway to mine actually is one of the things I love about the Bible, um, it's a quite a famous quote, which is that the Bible is shallow enough for a toddler to play in but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. <laughs> and I, I think mm. these two passages sort of reveal that feature, which is you can read it and anyone can understand the man of Jesus. But then there's such depth that deserves so much more thought and investigation like just thinking back to the unforgivable sin, that is something I want to spend more time mm. thinking mm. about and understanding even better so that if I'm asked again, I can give a better explanation that I just gave now. And that's what I love about the Bible is that depth, but also that accessibility and how both are really shown in this chapter. And for me, it's the the more those um, demon-y parts where we're looking back at the demon-possessed man that um and and sort of the jesus explaining how he is it's it's through his power and that he is greater greater than satan or any any demon that's the part that for me that stands out i've always got this sort of interesting fascination fascination when it comes to sort of maybe more demons and the um other different creatures found in the bible more so the old testament um that for me just just seeing that it's through his power um, his power alone that is greater than everything else. That's the part that I think stands out for me. I was uh, listening to one of our previous episodes, Josh, and you had a very similar application point from a previous episode about <laughs> it was the demons that stood out. Um, wondering if you've read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. No. Well, that is your homework for this coming week. Is I'm going to set you to read the <laughs> Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I love this. I'm setting everyone homework. All right. So what's your what's your challenge then? I don't need a challenge. Oh. I'm uh, just going to continue living my life, and uh, we'll report back next week. How's that? So as we as we wrap up, and Lockie's just uh, given us all sort of like these challenges, these these homeworks, and we'll try and think of some homework for him for next episode. But he's he's given us this, uh, and at least for um, for, for both uh, Morgan and myself, uh, these different sort of readings that are for us to do. And so if you've got any resources uh, that you found helpful in your sort of faith journey or just uh, anything that, that that you were interested in and it's uh, given you more knowledge, send us in. We'd love to know what you've um what you've read and uh, it might be help, really helpful for us or anyone else that uh, listens. They may actually uh, be scrolling through the comments and and see and see that and go, oh, that's really that's really cool. I want to um, I want to read that or or pick up that. Further further from that, if you've uh, like like we say uh, every week, if you uh, have any questions or just any comments about what you what you got out of this, we'd love to love to know love to know questions because we'd hopefully try and answer them to the best of our ability. But also, if you're like, I really like that part. 
or I really like this section, send it through because we'd love we'd love to see to see that. As always, this podcast is found wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure you stay up to date with all our social medias: YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and the like. Morgan, can I get you to pray for us? Yeah, Lord God, thank you for this space together that we can share and learn in your word. Thank you for the ability to explore and look further into all of the things that we read together. I want just want to pray over everyone's week to come and pray that listeners are getting something out of this. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.